We should be so thankful for a choir and orchestra like that and Corb's direction to help lead us into worship. And don't they look righteous? All those robes. My father worked for GMC for 43 years. He started before the war and then was drafted or enlisted, served in World War II and then came back to GM and continued until he had the 43 years in. He was elevated at one point in time to the director of material control, but realized the job was a bit difficult. He recognized a problem. As things became more complex in the auto industry, and he was in the truck and bus, or as, as it was called in those days, truck and coach, he came up with a solution to the problem. He came up with a strategy to the problem. All of these parts, the material that he had to control, needed somehow to be better organized. So he decided to come up with a connection for, with a new invention, to the problem that GM was facing. And the new invention was a computer. IBM had come up with a computer that filled a room and used punch cards. I don't know if that was the first one, but it was one of the first ones. And Dad said, we need to computerize our material list. And for that, GM gave him a bonus of, I don't know, $5,000. This was back in the 50s or in the 60s, so $5,000 seemed more impressive than uh, it just sounded to you. <laughs> but I thought that interesting and always was proud of my dad for that. It was, in, it was also interesting as computers developed, he wanted nothing to do with them. <laughs> and uh, we couldn't even get him to have one. But the problem was addressed with a strategy or solution. Now the big problem in the book of Romans we've been introduced to, we are sinners. And connected to that reality is the fact that sin leads to death. The wages of sin is death. And that's eternal separation from the God who made us and the God who loves us. So God steps in and comes up with a plan and that plan is his son. So Christ dies on the cross, taking all of our sin upon him and enduring our damnation so that anyone who trusts in him might receive the gift of eternal life. For if the wages of sin is death, the greater message is the gift of God is eternal life through Jesus Christ our Lord. The Apostle Paul makes it clear in the book of Romans that there are two options for righteousness. He says there is the establishing of your own righteousness, and then there is the submitting to God's righteousness. The first one is the, the righteousness of the law. We establish our own. It's based on our works. It's self-righteousness and cannot save. God's righteousness is produced by God, not us. It's received by faith, not works, and it always saves everyone who believes. The law of righteousness is where we try to obey God. The righteousness by faith is where we call on the name of the Lord 
to do the saving for us. The first leads to defeat. God's righteousness when embraced results in joy. So where we left off as we were studying in Romans 10 was this wonderful invitation uh, in verse 13 for whosoever or for everyone who calls on the name of the Lord shall be saved. That's actually an Old Testament quotation. And so today when you see the light blue, that's a quotation from the Old Testament and sometime I think most of the time the reference will be there. But this is all out of Romans 10 and verse 13. Paul revealed his passion in verse 1 of chapter 10. My hope and prayer to God for Israel is that they might be saved. And that passion was so strong that beginning in chapter 9, he said, I'm willing to be accursed if they could be converted and come to faith in Christ. Then you have the wonderful invitation we have on the screen that goes out to everyone, but there needs to be a strategy. There's a problem. The message of the gospel is there, but there needs to be a strategy to get it to people. And that's really what Paul deals with in the last part of chapter 10, the importance of sharing the gospel and then the sad aspect that many people do not submit themselves to the gospel. So I think in one sense, we have Paul emphasizing the urgency of the hour. That word urgency means something that is vitally important, which requires swift action. And Paul is saying there's something vitally important, and that is that people hear the gospel. And this requires swift action. So here is Paul's strategy. He talked about whoever calls on the name of the Lord will be saved, but verse 14, and he begins with these rhetorical questions. There are four of them that spill into 15. How can they call on the one they've not believed in? And how can they believe in the one in whom they have not heard? And how can they hear unless someone preaches to them? And we'll not go into verse 15 yet, but that says in How will they preach unless they be sent? It's interesting that Paul really uses the reverse order of things. He starts with the end and works backwards. But his concern is that they call upon the Lord. Whoever calls on the Lord is saved, verse 13, but how are they going to call? What's going to draw them? And he makes the point that they won't call on someone unless they've believed. The call is a call of faith and the call is a call of prayer. Once someone believes, you won't call unless you believe. By the way, it's interesting, in the writings of Paul, this is the only time where he talks about believing in. Uh, John's phrase, believing in, this is a regular expression for him but somewhat unusual in the writings of Paul, but it means the same thing. It's the idea of saving faith, to believe with the heart as well as the mind. And how can they believe in someone they have not heard? That's simple logic, isn't it? You hear first, and then you believe, and then you call. But the question is, what kind of hearing are we talking about? Hearing what? The text says 
How will they believe in the one, the person, in whom they have not heard? And basically, there's a couple different responses to that. How can they believe in Christ if they haven't heard about him? But I think the text goes more specifically, how will they believe in Christ until they have heard from him? And when the word of God, as we go further in this analogy and strategy, when the word of God is preached, hopefully it's not the voice of the preacher you hear, it's the voice of Christ. It's the word of God. The word of Christ, it's the word inspired by the spirit. It's the triune God speaking to your soul. And the voice is not important. You know how I know that? In the Old Testament, God used a donkey to preach his word, which is an appropriate analogy in many ways, but we'll not not talk about that. But the whole idea is it's not the messenger, it's the message. It's the one who is speaking. How can they hear? Here's the third one. Last part of verse 14. How can they hear unless someone preaches and there here's a very interesting word that's used about 60 times in the new testament and it is the word for proclamation it has the image before mass communication of a town crier or a herald not the personal name but one who heralds a message And the important role of communication in that day was a message to come down from the king to his criers. And they would, upon horse, ride out to various places, town squares, and then the herald would read from the scroll, hear ye, hear ye, this is what the king says. And that's exactly what preachers are supposed to do. When this word is used, it has a little more of a formal sense as we're going to see in the text because there is another word that is more about gossiping the gospel, gossip in a positive sense. If you love to gossip, it's not a bad thing if you gossip the gospel. And that's exactly what the word says. But here it's someone who proclaims the word of God, the town crier. There can be no hearers, Paul says, unless there are heralds proclaiming the message. 1 Corinthians chapter 1, verse 21, it pleased God by the foolishness of preaching to save those or to save them that believe, the old King James translation. Sometimes it talks about the message preach being foolish. And remember, this is the perspective of the world. Preaching isn't foolish, and the message isn't foolish, but from the world's standpoint, it's ridiculous. You're going to change people's lives by talking to them? A message about what God has done, and they don't have to do anything? That's Foolish. It was a stumbling block to the Jews. It was an insult to the Greeks who were sophisticated. Foolishness. And God said, well, that's okay. It's wiser than you think, and it's powerful than you think, and this is how I've determined to save people. 
that they'll hear the word of God. And there's something unusual when the word of God is preached by someone who is sent, when it's taken home to hearts by the Holy Spirit. Have you ever felt it? Oh, I have. (laughs) It's like God is speaking to you. You may not hear an audible voice, but it's just as real when you hear the word and it grabs hold of your heart. That's what we're talking about. James Edwards says, undoubtedly, one of the greatest achievements of the Protestant Reformation was the reclamation of preaching for faith and worship. Preaching became central because of this text in Romans. And John Stott adds to it, if preachers are accountable for their faithfulness to the report, then the world is equally accountable for its hearing of the report. For the first half of this section we're looking at, verse 14 to 21 talks about the preaching of it and then the hearing of it. And the two go hand in hand. Verse 15, how beautiful, or excuse me, and how can anyone preach unless they are sent? So again, we're working backwards uh, to, the, to the first part, forward. So first you have to be sent to preach and then when you preach, people hear and then when they hear, they believe and then when they believe, they call. And then, and this is a very uh, interesting characteristic of chapter 10. There are multiple allusions and quotations from the Old Testament, as you're gonna see. There's one in our text here, taken from Isaiah 52. How beautiful are the feet of those who bring the good news. Now this may be a time for me to emphasize the fact that while we want to embrace the literal message of the gospel, we do not overlook metaphor or figure of speech, right? This is not crassly literal. How beautiful are the feet of those. I can show you this isn't literal by taking off my socks and shoes. (laughs) You say, well, that's stupid. Well, sometimes people are just as stupid in their interpretation of the scripture because they miss metaphor and poetry. And that's how God designed to write his word. So we have to understand the point of the picture and not the details of the picture that take us in weird directions. No, it's not literally that their feet are beautiful or else every missionary who wanted to go to the field would uh, hear people say, what's your doctrine? What's your faith? What's your practice? Okay, now let me take a look at your feet and that will be the deciding factor. What's the metaphor? Well, it comes to us in a time where, again, communication was done by uh, those who would run out and represent a king, and uh, they would ride, sometimes uh, in the midst of a battle. Someone would come back to report uh, what was going on, and the imagery is from the 6th century B.C. when the Babylonians had taken Israel and, and Judah into captivity. But the message now is coming back that captivity is done and release has come and a messenger was coming. And how beautiful are the feet. How welcomed is the message. How wonderful is the person who comes 
with good news about good news. And it's interesting that that became almost universally this phrase, how beautiful are the feet of those who bring the good news. It was connected with the coming of the Messiah. And now it's used by Paul in the preaching of the gospel, which is the same thing. The coming of the Messiah, the King. He has come, he is coming. And what a wonderful thing it is to proclaim that message. Those who are sent, you could restrict it just to the apostles, but I think it's broader than that. And in the most unrestricted sense, it's anyone who takes the gospel, led of the Holy Spirit to share the gospel with others. But there is a sense of this more formal proclamation by those who are sent. You cannot serve as an ambassador without proper credentials. The calling, the commissioning, the empowering of Christ so that what you say as his ambassador is the word of Christ. The beautiful thing, what's the beautiful thing? Missions. That's the beautiful thing. How beautiful it is to send people. And indeed, they need to sense a calling to cross over cultural barriers and go far from home and neglect family and friends. What a beautiful thing it is when they do that and what a beautiful thing it is when they come to darkness and shed the light of the glorious gospel. It's a beautiful thing. I, I found this next slide, these, uh, this chart actually in Warren Worsby's little commentary on Romans. I just thought it so good I had to share it with you. He's talking about, this is a veteran missionary by the name of E. Myers Harrison, and he's talking about the motives that should cause us to go. And he says, there is a command from above, that's Mark 16, go ye into all the world. So you have the command from above. But I thought this was compelling. There's a cry from beneath. That's Luke 16, where the rich man says to Lazarus, go send uh, people to my brothers who are still alive and tell them of the gospel. If people in hell could speak, and they do in Luke 16. Oh, that's a compelling cry. There's the call from without, the Macedonian vision. This is Acts 16. Are they all verse chapter 16? They are, aren't they? which doesn't mean anything. I'm not into numerology, but I thought maybe I made a mistake. Maybe I have. This is the Macedonian call. Remember, Paul's not sure where he's gonna go, and he sees a person dressed in Macedonian garb, Greek, and they say, come over and help us, and the missionary team goes west. A very significant change. The gospel comes west, and we are the beneficiaries of that. And then finally, there's a constraint from within. This is 2 Corinthians 5. For the love of Christ compels us, because thus we judge. If one died, then all are dead. And the message needs to go out. So some great motives here for missionary work. So that's the urgency Paul is talking about, the importance of getting the message out there, the importance of sharing the gospel. It is the duty of those who are called. Woe unto them if they don't preach the gospel. But in one larger sense, it's the duty of all who believe to share the message of faith and to do so 
under the power of the Holy Spirit. Because how will they call unless they believe? And how will they believe unless they hear? And how will they hear unless someone tells them? And how will someone tell them unless sent by the power of the Holy Spirit? The urgency of the hour then awakens us to the tragedy of the hour. The tragedy of the hour is verse 16 through verse 20. I guess it includes verse 21. This is really all about Israel. Again, Paul's focus is on his own people. We see that in verse one. But it has application to us all, general principles. The tragedy of the hour, verse 16, is that not all the Israelites accepted the good news. They did not all obey and respond. For Isaiah says, now quoting from that wonderful chapter, Isaiah 53, Lord, who has believed our message, our report? Isaiah 53 is one of the most amazing chapters in all the Bible. Have you read it lately? It's about the suffering servant. Jewish rabbis will tell you that is a picture of a suffering nation, the nation of Israel. But there were some Jewish rabbis who broke from that and said, no, this is a picture of the coming Messiah. And that's exactly what it is. Because in the book of Acts, when someone is quoting from Isaiah 53, and a follower of Christ is nearby, the person says, who is this writer talking about, himself or someone else? And from that point, Philip began to preach to the Ethiopian eunuch the message about Jesus. Isaiah 53 is about Jesus. Who's believed our report? To whom is the arm of the Lord revealed? He grows it before him like a tender plant, like a shoot out of dry ground. He has no form or comeliness. There's no beauty in him that we should desire him. But he's the one who suffered in the place of sinners. All we like sheep have gone astray. We've turned everyone to his own way, but the Lord has laid on him, what is it? The iniquity, the sin of us all. That's the gospel in Isaiah 53. So he takes this up. Here's the reality. Here's the tragedy of the hour when God speaks even through those commissioned and empowered with the true message, not everyone believes. And of course, that happened to the nation of Israel. There was only a remnant who embraced the truth. Just a small number of people. And so the tragedy is you go out and share the gospel and there are many who will not believe in a disfigured savior. Jesus on the cross. You promised to save others, save others. They knew the message. Why don't you come down from the cross and save yourself? No Messiah is going to be nailed to a cross. We won't believe in a disfigured savior. And the report, although delivered, is not embraced. So Paul goes basically to a summary statement, and this may be the most popular verse, or it isn't the most popular, one of the most popular verses in chapter 10, verse 17. So then faith cometh by hearing, and hearing by the word of God. 
Now that's not the exact translation of the NIV. The NIV says, consequently, faith comes from hearing the message. And the message is heard through the word of Christ. But almost a literal translation says, so faith comes by hearing. And hearing comes by the word of Christ. You see, the word of Christ has creative power to it. If I preach my word, that is is, uh, ineffective. It's neutered from any influence on your soul. But when the word of God is preached under the power of the Holy Spirit, even though the messenger may be nothing, it explodes in your heart with power and can create faith. Warren Wiersbe simply says, the word of Christ creates faith. Or listen to Peter, 1 Peter 1.23, you've been born again, not of corruptible seed, but of incorruptible, incorruptible, by the word of God the living word of God that lasts forever. This book has regenerative power. Spurgeon has a great line. The great English preacher Charles Spurgeon says, you don't need to defend the Bible, just let it loose. If I had a caged lion behind me, I wouldn't have to tell you how powerful he is. All I have to do is let him loose. And you'll believe. (laughs) Yeah, just let the word go and watch it work. And it does its work. Do you ever feel convicted when someone is preaching? Do you ever, is your heart ever warmed by the mercy of God to your soul? Do you ever feel drawn? Like, oh, I need Jesus. I I need to pray. I, I need to, yeah, that's God's work. And he's working today and he works whenever the word of God is preached and that's how faith comes. It comes from hearing the word. So this is something of a summary of what he's already said. The New English Bible, faith is awakened by hearing the word of Christ. By the, word of, by the way, the word of Christ is both the content about Christ and the author Christ himself. The RSV. So faith comes from what is heard and what is heard comes from the preaching of Christ. So, Paul has another question. Okay, if that's the way it works and not all Israel believed. Verse 18, I asked, did they, did they not hear? Did the message not reach them? And he says, of course it did. And he answers with Psalm 19, verse four. Their voice has gone out into all the earth, their words to the ends of the world. That's a reference to creation. And the fact that creation misses no one. The heavens declare the glory of God. The earth, everything shows that he is in control. Day unto day, night unto night, they pour forth speech and knowledge. There's no place anywhere in the world where their message is not heard. And so he uses this and applies it to the apostles' preaching. 
The stars preach everywhere. And so to the, do the apostles. But you might ask the question, well, has everyone literally heard? And again, sometimes the Bible will talk in a universalism that is representative, as one the old theologian F.F. F. Bruce said, a universalism that is representative. Listen to Colossians chapter 1, verse 23. This is the gospel that you have heard and that has been proclaimed to every creature under heaven. If that were literally true, why did Paul keep going to the ends of the earth? Why do we keep going to the ends of the earth? Paul in the book of Romans wanted to keep going and pushing, getting the message out. So it's not a contradiction in the Bible. We just have to understand that sometimes the precision that a more poetic statement makes is not the kind of precision that you have in math class. The idea is the message has gone out and the Jews heard. Think of it. Jesus went to every synagogue. Think of it. Jesus taught in the festivals in the temple. And the apostles took their message everywhere and Paul continued to want to go like in Romans chapter 15 to places that haven't been touched. He wanted to go to Spain. He wanted to take the gospel into virgin territory as it were to proclaim the truth of the message. It was said whenever, wherever there was a cynic or a, wherever there was a community of Jews, the gospel had been heard and was proclaimed. So they've heard, they had opportunity to do so. And Jesus on the cross heard the words from the teachers of the law, you said you could save others. So the message got through, but they rejected it. So Paul asked a second question, not the same as the first, but another question. Again, let me ask a question. Did Israel understand? Because there is a difference in hearing and understanding, right? Just ask any wife. Did you hear what I said, honey? Yes, I did. In the middle of a Lions football game, don't ask questions. <laughs> did you hear what I said? Yes, I did. What did I say? I don't know. I heard a voice. But actually, that's biblical because Paul one time was walking on the road to Damascus. <laughs> there were people with him. Heard a voice. Asked the people around him, what did it say? We don't know. We heard the voice. We didn't understand. Oh, that happens a lot. But to be willfully ignorant, that's a different story. And earlier in the chapter, it says that Israel was willfully ignorant of God's righteousness. They had selective hearing. That's, that's what the parable of the sower tells us in Matthew chapter 13. They heard it, but they didn't believe it. Or they didn't grasp it and internalize it. They had ears to hear, but did not hear. They heard, but did not hear, right? 
And so we need to have ears to hear and hearts to believe because the hearing should move down to the heart. Confession is made with the mouth, but believing is done in the heart. That's verse 9 and 10. So it's interesting. Did they understand? So he quotes now from Deuteronomy, one of the quotations from Moses, Moses on the plains of Moab. I will make you envious by those who are not a nation, and I will make you angry by a nation that has no understanding. What does that mean? Israel heard, but didn't understand so as to embrace and internalize the message. In fact, what Israel did is they went after other gods who are no gods. We call them idols. The Bible calls them idols. So now get this. Since Israel made God jealous by worshiping non-gods, God is going to make Israel jealous by raising up a non-people. It's exactly what the text says. I will make you angry. I will make you envious by a people, not a nation, and by a people who have no understanding. He's going to talk more about this when we get to Romans chapter 11, where verse 11 says, because of their righteousness, because of their transgression, salvation has come to the Gentiles. Because of the transgression of the Jews, the message has gone out to the Gentiles to make Israel envious so it'll come up again it's like a a man who might divorce his wife and then after a period of time the wife finds someone else and marries and and has a happy relationship and the ex sees how happy his wife is and he gets extremely jealous and God says you went after other lovers I'm going after the Gentiles. I don't think of the morality of marriage and all the details there, but think of the fact that God is saying, you will be envious. And now is the age, the times of the Gentiles. So verse 20, Isaiah boldly says, I was found by those who did not seek me. I revealed myself to those who did not ask for me. That's from Isaiah 65. Like a true rabbi, he takes a quotation from the law and then follows, up, follows it up with a quotation from the prophets. And this quotation reveals marvelous. Think of this, marvelous grace. Just like you and I have received. He goes to the Gentiles, finding those who did not seek him. He reverses the order. Usually pe- people seek and knock. And ask, but the order is reversed. For God says, I'll be found by those who are not seeking me. I will reveal myself to those who did not ask for me. Verse 21. But concerning Israel, he says, All day long I have held out my hands to a disobedient and obstinate people. What a way to bring this discussion to the close. The urgency of sharing the message, the tragedy of rejecting the message, and Israel has done that, and so have many Gentiles, and maybe so have you. 
But here's a wonderful contrast in the picture of man and God. The picture of man, disobedient and obstinate. Certainly Israel was like that. And to a great measure they are even to this day, not willing to bow the knee to Jesus as the Son of God, the Savior, the Messiah. They're resistant, recalcitrant, dismissive, obstinate, arrogant, stubborn, and maybe I just described you. You will not come. I will not have that man rule over me, you say. You can't create your own righteousness. You can only embrace his. And so you stumble over Christ, the one who is to be the stepping stone and the cornerstone is now a stumbling stone for you. But look at the view of God. He says that he holds out his hands to this disobedient people all day long. Maybe think of this picture from Buenos Aires, the statue of Christ the Redeemer. You've seen it before. I think that's amazing. Of course, notice, arms out, right? This next slide gives us a a little more closer picture of the statue. I've never been there. Some of you probably have. I'm sure it's an amazing tourist site. When you look at pictures, you'll see buses down there and people climbing up to get there and to see the statue. And I'm sure people are going through some religious things. The thing I just like about it is that it gives us a wonderful picture of Romans 10, 21. This is, this is Jesus today. He offers himself humbly with arms extended, a promising welcome, maybe even a warm hug. He doesn't simply allow himself to be found. He actively reaches out to people. And he does it all day long. Interesting feature about a day. A day can be a solar day, 24 hours, and that's the way we normally use the town, uh, use the term. But the, the day can also be an extended period, period of time. Theologically, we are in the day of grace, right? The day of the Lord is coming, which is longer than just a solar day. But interesting, to both words used in both contexts, a day ends and doesn't last forever. It may last for a long time. But God's mercy to your soul will not last forever. And he calls you to come and to believe. I love that old hymn, earnestly, tenderly, or softly and tenderly, Jesus is calling, calling for you and for me. Come home, come home. You who are weary, come home. Earnestly, tenderly, Jesus is calling, calling, O sinner, come home. Why should we tarry when Jesus is pleading, pleading for you and me? Why should we linger and heed not his mercies, mercies for you and for me? Oh, for the wonderful love he has promised, promised 
for you and for me. Though we have sinned, he has mercy and pardon. Pardon for you and for me. So come home. Let's pray. Oh, Father, our holy God, you have sent your word out and it has been heard. I pray that it will be believed and people therefore will call upon your name for whoever calls upon the name of the Lord in honest faith will be saved. And then our task is to share this glorious good news with others. May it happen in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen.